Uh, Well, today we continue our series on Jesus Didn't Say That, and we're going to look particularly closely at this scripture, uh, which has been misunderstood widely uh, for the last uh, thousand, two thousand years. And so let's look closely uh, at this scripture of Paul's admonition to the early church in Corinth. No test or temptation that comes your way is beyond the course of what others have had to face. All you need to remember is that God will never let you down. He'll never let you be pushed past your limit. He'll always be there to help you come through it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. moments in our lives, like 9-11, like April 19th, like when we find out a loved one has cancer, we cry out to God, why? Why? We look for answers of why these terrible things happen while suffering happens, and sometimes unexplained suffering. And if we're sitting with a friend that wants to know, why is this happening, or how am I going to get through this? There's something within us we just want to bring comfort, and sometimes we just say stupid stuff. We, we, just, we just say stupid things. And if you've been in those situations and people have tried to comfort you, um, it's all you can do just to not beat them. And so we, we want around here to be people of love and grace and helpfulness. And oftentimes, uh, the best thing to do is to simply sit with someone, to pray for them, to bless them, to walk them through whatever they're walking through. And so uh, we're in the third week of our series, Jesus Didn't Say That. Uh, first week, uh, we looked at everything happens for a reason. Uh, and then last week, Brandon took us through God helps those who help themselves. And this week, we're going to look at God won't give you more than you can handle. They all sound kind of right. But if we're not careful, the implications of what we're saying can have really um, terrible effects. So week one, everything happens for a reason. Read the last part with me. But the reason may not be about God. It absolutely may not be about God. Yes, there's cause and effect in our world. We know that. That's how God made the world. Um, But not everything that happens is God's will. And we get in a lot of trouble um, when something terrible happens and it's unexplained. Um, You know, I hate the insurance companies when they say, oh, it was an act of God. Right? No one says, hey, it's a beautiful 70-degree day and the sun's up. It's an act of God. You know? But you get a hurricane or a tornado or something terrible. Oh, well, that's God. We have to be really careful what we put God's name on, don't we? Thou shalt not take the Lord God your name in vain. That's what that's all about, friends. So then last week, um, Brandon taught us this. God helps those who help themselves. No, Jesus didn't say that. God helps who? Everyone. Everyone. Then you've heard this before. God is good, and the answer is all the time. And all the time, God is good. You've heard this, right? Well, if God is good all the time, then he's helping everyone, not just some, Right? And, and this is really more of a cultural pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And, and I know that, that there's a part of us that, that wants us to think, well, he really does help him a little more. Well, well no. no. The scripture says that God sends the rain on the righteous and the unrighteous alike. Isn't that true? 
When the rainstorms came through on Friday, didn't it get all of us? Right? It wasn't like, oh, not their house. They've been bad this week. I mean, we don't worship a weird Santa Claus of rain. Okay? I mean, God is good how often? All the time. And so if God is good all the time, then God helps who? Everyone. And then we come to this one today. God won't give you more than you can handle. Well, there's all sorts of problems with that. One is the implication that God's doing it to you. Right? So when I went down to visit my grandmother in Dothan, Alabama, we went to a little country church, and the pastor said this. God is good, and the people said, all the time. And then the people, and then he said, all the time, and the people said, God is good. And then he said this. I'd never heard this before. And he goes, and he ain't mad at you. I thought, God, that's weird. But then I thought it through, and I thought, he's right. God's not mad at you. He's not mad at you. He loves you. And his character is good all the time. But if you've been having one of those weeks that we have sometimes where somebody hits you um, in uh, the parking lot and they don't leave you a note or, um, you know, your insurance goes wonky or you find a bad, a bad diagnosis, you can think, man, it feels like God's kind of picking on me this week. Haven't you all ever felt that way? But you need to understand God isn't doing that to you. God loves you. He has what's best for you. So today I want to kind of take us through three scenes very quickly so we can try to make sense of this saying and, and, and what we can say in response um, and what we can do in response um, to suffering. So scene one, Jesus didn't say this at all. It was Paul. Paul's writing to the church in Corinth, and it's a misunderstanding of, of, of what Paul's saying to the early church, and it's out of context. Um, and context is super important as we talk about all the time around here. So Paul writes in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 10. Now, just to give you a little scholarly thing, this is for free. 1 Corinthians is actually 2 Corinthians, and 2 Corinthians is actually 3 Corinthians because they lost the first letter to the Corinthians. Okay, so we're about to read from 1 Corinthians, which is really the second letter, but don't let that throw you. Just hang in there. Okay, so they lost the first, and we don't know what that says. Uh, this is probably the second letter, but we call it 1 Corinthians because it's the only one we got. Okay, you all with me? All right, moving forward. Just trivia. Okay, so Paul writes this. No testing, a better translation is temptation. No tempting uh, no, or testing has overtaken you that is not common to everyone. God is faithful. That's the important part. God is faithful and he will not let you be tested or tempted beyond your strength. But with the testing or the temptation, he will also provide the way out so that you may be able to endure it. Isn't that true? That, that there's something that you're thinking about. There's, there's something that you're thinking, well, I know I'm not really supposed to do that, but, I'm, but I think I'm going to anyway. I'm just going to do it because I'm mad at somebody or I'm sad or I'm lonely. I'm hungry, angry, lonely, tired. That's the way AA would put it. You know, I'm one of those things, so I'm just going to do it. And right when you're, you've convinced yourself that you're going to do it, somebody walks in the room or the phone rings and God has provided you a way out. Hasn't that happened to you in your life? There's something in your mind you think, well, I'm, yeah, I know that's not the right thing, but I'm going to do it anyway. And then, unfortunately, if you're like me, oftentimes you just double down on it. I'm like, well, did the person leave the room or did, you know, did the phone stop ringing? Okay, I'm going to go ahead and, and do it anyway. Now, what God's telling us is he'll provide you a way out, but you have to take it. You have to take it. So what is this testing that Paul is talking about? Well, he's really talking about temptation common to us all. It, temptation's true for everybody. We're all tempted by different things. Um, we just are. And it's a warning, friends, against overconfidence. This whole section in 1 Corinthians 10 from verse 1 all the way through verse 14 is really a warning of overconfidence. Haven't you all ever been overconfident about something? I am super overconfident about my ability to lose weight. 
Super overconfident. And so, like, we'll be at the grocery store, and we'll go down the cake and pie and brownie aisle, and, and I'll think, you know what? I'm going to lose 30 pounds. And when I lose that 30 pounds, I'm going to have Chantel bake me some brownies. And so I buy the brownie mix, right? Because I'm overconfident. You and I both know I'm not losing any weight. So, but you put it in the basket, right? For the day after you've lost that 30 pounds, you're going to bake those brownies. And then, right, you check out and you think, I'm going to start my diet when? Tomorrow. It's always tomorrow, isn't it? And then you think, because I'm going to lose 30 pounds, I'm so confident, I think I'll just bake those brownies tonight. But I won't eat them because I'm confident. And then about 2 in the morning, you wake up smelling those brownies and you think, I'm going to eat those brownies. No, I'm not, because I'm going to lose 30 pounds. And you wake up in the morning, and miraculously, the brownies are gone. Right? Isn't this how temptation works? Because we're overconfident in our abilities. And that's what Paul's saying. These folks grew up in one of the most um, kind of crazy uh, Las Vegas-like port towns around. And we're going to get to that in a minute. So Paul's warning them, look, you grew up. In, in a system, in a way, with, with idols and temples and prostitutes all around you. And now you think that you're going to live a different kind of life without leaving your old haunts behind. And anybody that's ever been to a 12-step group knows that that's not possible. The first thing a sponsor says to somebody who's trying to leave addiction is, you're also going to have to leave some of those friends, maybe all of them. You're going to have to leave those things that you used to do before. If you want to get clean and sober and you want to stay that way, if you have a new life, you're going to have to make some different changes in your life. So Paul writes this to the early church and to us. I don't want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud. They were good people. They all passed through the sea, right? That God saved them from Egypt. And they were all baptized into Moses, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. That rock was Christ, right? So these early church followers were um, basically a sect of Judaism. Um, The Jews all under Moses, uh, great people, God's chosen people. And then Paul says this, nevertheless, Even though you're in that line, even though these are our people, we're God's people, God was not pleased with most of them, and they were struck down in the wilderness. Do not become idolaters as some of them did. Because we remember when Moses goes up to the mountain and he gets the Ten Commandments, everybody else is building a golden calf. They melted down their earrings and jewelry and all the rest, and they were already back to idol worship, just like they had been in Egypt. He says, no, no, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. We must not put Christ to the test. So, he says, if you think you're standing, if you think, you know, you're, you're doing the right thing, don't fool yourself. Watch out. Watch out, he says, so that you don't fall. No testing has overtaken you that's not common to everyone. No temptation. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted, tested beyond your strength. But with the testing or the temptation, he will also provide what, friends? The way out for all of us, so that you may be able to endure it. Now, this is common wisdom for us, right? Paul says it early, but we would say it like this. If you mess with the bull, you get the what? Right, you get this, right? Or if you play with fire, you're going to get... See, you know this stuff. That's what Paul's saying. He says you can't live that old life and expect things to be different, right? You can't do the same things, run the same circles, and expect your life to be different, particularly if you live in Corinth, because it's a large port city with many pagan temples. Aphrodite, uh, temple said it had a thousand prostitutes in it. Uh, and it was just normal every day. It was something you could do if you wanted to be fertile. Uh, it was very important to have many children in those days to either be in the fishing markets or to farm or whatever that is. So people would go to the temple um, so that they, the Aphrodite, the, the goddess uh, of love and fertility, would then bless them. It was commonplace. But then Paul writes this, Therefore, my dear friends, 
flee from the worship of idols. Now, if we were to put it in, in our terms today, it was really hard to get a good stake in Corinth that wasn't already sacrificed to some other god. And so he said, we, as Jewish people, as a sect of Judaism, we can't do that. We can't eat meat that's already been sacrificed to somebody other than Yahweh, other than our God. So, so don't do that. And that was very difficult. It was because everybody had all these temples all around them. And in the same way, um, it would be much like the, a modern-day Shanghai, right? It's a port city. So, um, you know, sailors, businessmen, all that sort of thing, they come in there, um, and then at night... Um, you know, it kind of looks like this. By the way, do not, get, do not Google Shanghai Nights. Right? Right? But this is, this is all you need to know about that. Uh, and that is everything that you could think of happens in port cities. Uh, it does now. It, it did then. Okay? So uh, back then, uh, Mo- Corinth was here. It still is here. Um, and the thing was, it was very, this is Ephesus, modern-day Turkey. Israel's going to be down over here. And as they would sail... They did not want to come under here. A lot of folks died around this horn. And so what they would do is they would sail in here in the calm waters. Uh, There's a little isthmus there. They would put um, big tree trunks, and they would roll the ship across the isthmus and here into smooth sailing and back out the other side. That's the way they did it. But can you imagine? You've got four days, right? Your ships come in. You've got four days to do whatever, and whatever happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. That's the way it worked. And Paul says, look, I'm calling you to a new life. To a new life. You don't have to fall to the temptations that you've known all your life. You actually can live anew. And you can live anew even in that same town. But you're going to have to live differently. So here's the thing when it comes to this saying. Paul's not talking about adversity. He's talking about temptation. And that you have a new way of life. That God has provided a way out for you in Christ Jesus. And so he says this. Um, to Colossae, another church that he has started, uh, which is not far away. It's the same idea as he's talking to early Christians. He says, if you've been raised with Christ, them and us, seek the things that are where? Above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are what? Above. How are we doing with that? Throughout the week, where are your minds? For many of us, it's on our work. It's on the things of earth. It's on our details. It's on our to-do list. And, and, and those things are fine, but first and foremost, we need to set our minds where? Above, right? Not on things that are on earth. For you have died. Your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. So put to death, therefore, whatever in you is earthly, fornication, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. These things suck the life right out of us. He says you don't have to live that way. There's a new life for you of peace and joy and goodness. And so it kind of boils down to this, that God gives us the opportunity to choose what God wants or what we want. Isn't that true? You have choice. You have free will. And you can choose what you want or what God wants. And here's the important thing, friends. God doesn't walk away when we make a wrong choice. He's not mad at you. He's really not. He loves you. His character is always good, and he's always for you. He's for us. He's for the world. It is God's will that none should perish. Not one, the scripture says. So that's scene one. Scene two is this. We've got three problems with this today if we try to live this out. The first is that God doesn't give you the problem anyway. If you've got an illness or you're in grief or something terrible has happened in your family, that's not God doing that to you. He's good. How often? All the time. I know we've covered this, but I get the sense that some of you still don't believe it. 
right? He's good all the time. When things are good and when things are bad and in all the times between, God is constant and God is good. Now, this can be very difficult when you see things that you don't understand uh, or there are problems that are bigger than you are. In 2003, 15 years ago now, I went to Nigeria with Reverend Sunday Anoa. Um, that's me 15 years ago, the guy on the right in the green. And so we went. And I don't think I'll ever go back, quite frankly. It was a terrible trip. Um, once I got over there, I had some members with me. Uh, we were a small church at the time. Uh, we were worshiping in Cheyenne Middle School. Uh, but I had brought Reverend Sunday into church membership when I was in Dallas, and he'd asked me to go, so I said I would. He asked me to teach at a seminary there, which I did. Um, and, he, and when I got there, what I found was that they had been up all night fighting robbers because they knew that seminary students would bring much of what they owned to the seminary because they were going to be there two or three years. And as soon as they crossed the gate, they would rob them at gunpoint. That's what I'd walked into. And then Reverend Sunday said, oh, and by the way, um, the leading candidate for the presidency has called me. Uh, I'll see you in three days. And he just left us. He went to Abuja, to the capital city, and there we were um, in Lagos, Nigeria, just hanging out. And um, an interesting thing happened. They took us. Uh, so much of the work that I thought I was going to get to do, I didn't really do. The, the seminary training piece about church planting I was going to do turned into a prayer service just for courage um, and to carry these folks through, which they appreciated. Um, but I was in way over my head, way over my head. And so then they take us to the governor's mother's house. They make us eat this weird bitter nut thing, uh, which was terrible. I think they were just hazing us just for fun uh, since we were Americans. And then um, Cosmo, uh, Sunday's friend, said this. He said, this is the great esteemed Reverend Foster from Edmond, Oklahoma in the United States. And he has come to see how we treat our poor. And I was like, say what, Cosmo? Like, I got 50 people in a cafetorium. What are you talking about? And the, and, the, and the queen mother was like, oh, I see. He's like, yes, they're very important people, very important people. And we're about to go tour uh, the Episcopal um, compound out in the bush, about 15 miles out. Um, and and we, we just wanted to let you know what we're doing, you know, so we would have safe passage, you know, all this kind of stuff. And so we go. And we're on these dirt roads. And there are lions and tigers and bears and giraffes. And oh, my. I mean, it's just out in the, in, in the bush. And when we get there, it gets worse. I didn't think it could get worse because I'm in a full suit. They required that of their clergy, and it's about 99 degrees and 99% humidity, and I was miserable. And they're walking us around, and I just thought I was miserable because what I found at the compound was about 40 to 60 um, men and women who were mentally ill uh, or epileptic. They would have seizures. And in that country at that time, they thought everyone with a mental illness or seizure activity was demon-possessed. And it wasn't safe for them to be in a populated area because they would kill them. And so the Episcopal Church welcomed these folks, and they had a compound around them, and they took care of them. The only problem is the, the head lady there had fallen ill and had gone back to London, and they had not had food in the compound for three days. And so I'm taking this tour of people starving to death. And I'm thinking, Jesus, I did not sign up for this. I mean, really, I mean, I, I, I don't... I'm a nobody. I don't know anything. I don't know how to help these people. I don't have money on me. If I did, I wouldn't know how to switch it over to Nigerian currency. I'm like, what, what's going on? And just when I thought it couldn't get any worse, I started to hear sirens. And the sirens got closer and closer and closer. And then I thought, that's it. I'm dead. 
They're just they're going to take me and my poor wife with two small children, and that's going to be the end of us. And then the governor's mother shows up with enough food to feed the compound for six months. See, they just used us as a pawn. They were just teasing. They didn't know who I was. They figured I must be somebody important since I came all the way from America. So they, they better do this right. And so all this food, plantain and rice and beans and all that, showed up and God fed the compound for the next six months. And I did nothing other than show up and be miserable. And I was like, oh, Thank you, Jesus. That's, that's good. You actually do know what you're doing. They took us by some orphanages, and there was a little baby named Miracle there. He had been very hungry, but because of who God is, God showed up, and God fed him. God fed him. Now, I want to I tell you all this to say this. God didn't make all that bad stuff happen, but God can come along in the midst of that bad stuff and take whatever you have to offer and turn it for good. God can feed an entire village of people that have no ability to feed themselves by calling uh, three folks from a tiny little church that meets in a school in Edmond, Oklahoma, and drag them over to Nigeria and then feed his people. That's what God wants to do. God can do it because he's good how often? All the time. Even when we don't know it, even when we don't know how. And so James, the brother of Jesus, says this. He says, No one, when tempted, should say, I'm being tempted by God. That's not what God does. For God cannot be tempted by evil. And he himself tempts, say it, no one. That's not who God is. God is a writer of wrongs. He makes the crooked places straight. He brings heaven to earth. That's who Jesus is. That's who God is. So our choices and the choices of others have consequences, don't they? And sometimes we know what those are, and oftentimes we don't. Now, as a father of two, I want to celebrate Chantel for a moment. Uh, She and I have raised, mainly her, have raised two boys past 18, and they did not die. We are so excited about that. They're now in college, and we give them to the Lord. And so here's the thing. When they were growing up, maybe you've said this to your children, hey, I want you to be really careful about this group of people that you're running with because it just seems like bad things happen around them. And then your child's going to say back to you, right? But I'm a good kid. And you say, I know you're a good kid. But it just so happens that when these other kids are around, bad things just seem to happen. Hasn't that ever been the case in your family? And so it looks, I just want you to see, if you're young and, and, you, and you don't know, you haven't lost anybody, you haven't had tragedy, you think your parents don't know what they're talking about. By the time you get to be my age, you know that what this looks like is a lot like this. And I want to thank Callie for finding these for me. Here, kids, having a great time. They're on the swings. Just do what your friend does, right? Or not. Right? It looks fine. Oh, yeah, just... Oh, or, yeah, or just... Yeah. Is this a good idea? One, two, three, four. Okay, there they go. Oh, this is going to work out. Oh, yeah. Okay, just an example. Now, did God make that happen? Come on, did God make that happen? No, no. Our choices have consequences, right? But here's, here's another thing. We were never meant to face the world or hard situations alone. While we're not supposed to just follow blindly what other people do, we're also not supposed to just leave them lying on the ground, right? We're to come alongside them. And the scripture says this to all of us. Give all your anxieties to God because God cares for you because God's good all the time. 
Peter, the founder of the church, says it like this. Cast all your anxiety, all your worries on him because he cares for you. Uh, Reverend Adam Hamilton, who wrote the book Half Truth, says it like this. He says, it's not that God won't give you more than you can handle, but that God will help you handle all that you've been given. I think that's right. And I know it's just a, a little shift there, but notice that God's not the one doing it to you, and God will come alongside. But also need to say this, that as God comes alongside, it almost always requires the participation of us, of God's people, right? And most of the time, it requires that participation when it's most inconvenient, most inconvenient. Uh, before I was a pastor, I was a journalist, and my favorite journalist on the planet these days is Steve Hartman. I want to show you a little piece that he did. And that purpose should be to serve the living God. Although no one knew it at the time, Minister Jerome Jones of the Springfield Baptist Church in Monticello, Georgia, recently went through a crisis of faith. I was getting ready to stop coming to church so much as, as I did. The minister? Yeah. I didn't see God doing anything for me. So given all that, this thing comes and basically lands in your lap. Lo and behold, here God shows up. Jerome says last month, he was at his day job with the power company when a note came down from the heavens. It was attached to three balloons, and it read, God, help me go to college. Please help me get everything I need to leave Wednesday. Signed, Mykia Curry. Mykia was about to start her freshman year at Albany State University in Albany, Georgia. No one in her family had ever gone to college, which is why she sent up that prayer, scared and worried. Scared. This is my first time being away from home and worried, like, as in financially. Your family has no money? Not really, no. So that's why I decided to come to college so my little brother won't have to go through the same thing I did. Mykia hopes to become a nurse to provide both an example and a better life for her brother, Malik. She got a student loan, but didn't have money for other necessities, like a fridge for her room or even a comforter for her bed. She needed help. Unfortunately, the wind blew her balloons to just about the poorest preacher in central Georgia. I don't have any money in my savings account. I, I drained it from the taxes on my mom's house. I said, now you see this, right? Did you say that out loud? <laughs> I said it out loud because I, this, this is the way I talk to God. We got away with each other. You may have a way with each other, but he doesn't understand your finances. No, no, he showed that. Yeah, evidently he did. When he found that balloon message, <laughs> Jerome says he had a total of $125 to his name. How much did you spend on her? I spent all of it on her. He delivered a comforter and a mini fridge. And most importantly, a ton of much-needed inspiration. It encourages me to keep going, knowing that prayers are answered. Likewise, Jerome also has renewed faith. A good reminder that sometimes the best way to get your prayers answered is to answer someone else's. Steve Hartman, on the road in Monticello, Georgia. Now, I know what some of you are thinking out there. You're thinking, Pastor Mark, the next time some balloons land in my face, I'll do something. <laughs> you don't have to wait till the balloons, friends. There's needs all around us all the time. When I made the least amount of money in my whole life, I made $14,500 a year as a reporter, full-time, 60 hours a week, at KWWL, uh, 
television station in Waterloo, Iowa, um, driving a beat-up car that my grandmother had given us. Um, couldn't even roll down my windows. It was terrible. I was trying to save money for Chantel's wedding ring at the time. And I got this thing in the mail from Compassion International that this little girl named Sylvia Segalis uh, needed help. She needed food. She needed to go to school. And she was really struggling in Bolivia. And the Lord got a hold of my heart, and he's like, you can do this. And I was like, no, Lord, I can't. I got nothing. I got less than nothing. And he's like, you can do this. And so for my, whatever it was at the time, $28 a month, um, I started supporting Sylvia when I didn't have enough for myself. I cut out every coupon and every paper I could find just to try to make it. And when I got to the point a couple of years later when I thought, you know what, I really can't. Chantel and I were engaged and we were about to get married and I was going to have a family and I needed to take care of other people other than Sylvia. I got the strangest letter in the mail from Compassion International that Sylvia had aged out of the program and that she was just fine, that she, her education was complete and everything that she needed was done. And at the very moment when I felt like I could not support her one more month, the Lord said, you don't have to. It's taken care of. And it was really powerful to me. That God knows everything that I need and knows what other people need and he's able to, to work it together. Now, to be fair, over the next 30 years, I've gotten plenty of letters from Compassion. I haven't answered all of them, but we answer some of them from time to time as the Lord leads us. So, the final scene is this. The promise is not that God won't give you more than you can handle. The promise is much better than that. Much better than that. Maybe you know this. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest the table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is the promise of God to his people. And we fear no evil, friends. Why? Because God is with us. For thou art with me. And we know that God is for us. It says so in the scriptures in Romans 8. If God is for us, who is against us? God, who did not withhold his own son, but gave him up for all of us, will he not with him also give us everything else? Who is to condemn? It is Christ Jesus who died, yes, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed intercedes for us with groans too deep for words. You see, friends, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing. The scriptures promise us this. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will hardship or distress or persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor, say it with me, anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So just in case you missed it, what can separate us from the love of God? Annie Johnson Flint was born on Christmas Eve, 1866, in a small New Jersey town. And at the age of three, she lost her mom. Soon after that, her father became so ill that he could no longer take care of his children and was forced to give them up for adoption. And now Annie was taken in by a wonderful, loving family named Flint. That's how she got her last name. But before she finished high school, both of her adoptive parents had died as well. 
Now imagine losing not only one set of parents, but two before you finish high school. Still as a teenager, having to lose four parents. She dreamed of being a teacher, and she achieved her goal. And not long after she began teaching, she was diagnosed with a degenerative disease that left her unable to walk or live independent. She, she spent the next 40 years bound to a wheelchair and living in a facility where others could provide for her physical needs. It was in that season that Annie began writing poetry. And as time went by, her illness caused the joints in her hands to swell so painfully that it was difficult to write. So she then began to dictate her poems. Annie said she wrote in the hope of helping others who were undergoing the kinds of challenges that she knew so well. And perhaps her best-known poem was titled, What God Hath Promised. I want you to see what she wrote. God hath not promised skies always blue, flower-strewn pathways all our lives through. God hath not promised sun without rain, joy without sorrow, peace without pain. But God hath promised strength for the day, rest for the labor, light for the way, grace for the trials, help from above, unfailing sympathy, undying love. These words from Annie for all of us. So when we get to our action steps, this may be one of the most important things I've ever said to you as a congregation. If you have more than you can handle... And we all do from time to time, friends. Please ask for help. Please. There's no way for us to know. It's one of the most painful things that happens to me as pastor is that we have people hurting in our congregation that I don't know anything about. And sometimes they simply disappear. I find out a year or two later. There's no way for us to know unless somebody tells us. If you're in a place where you have more than you can handle, please Ask for help from someone, from our clergy staff, from a person in your small group, from a doctor, from a counselor. Ask for help. We all need help sometimes. We just do. And God is there to help us. He will provide us a way out. He is offering you now a way out, but you're going to have to ask for help so that folks know you need help. And if you know someone who's overwhelmed, walk with them. Walk with them. Sit with them. Pray for them. You don't have to throw any cliche their way. Just walk through it with them. Be there with them. Will you pray this closing prayer with me? Oh God, we are grateful for the way you walk with us in every moment. In those moments when we are tempted and tested, help us remember that you have better for us, that by your grace we can resist temptation. Help us see and choose your way of escape. When we walk through difficulty and adversity, Help us remember that these burdens did not come from you. Remind us of your love and presence with us. Thank you for the people who come along our path and help carry us through times of grief, illness, and sorrow. Give us courage to ask for help and the grace to receive it. Help us have eyes to see those around us who need your help. Give us strength and grace to walk and sit and pray and weep and even laugh with all who need your loving touch. How grateful we are that you are our refuge and strength and ever-present help in times of trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, not because there is no trouble and not because there is no death, but because you are with us. You are with us always. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. And now with the confidence of the children of God, let's pray the Lord's Prayer together. 
Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.